All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. Good to hear your voices as we sing God's praises together. And now we're going to continue worshiping. So if you've got a Bible with you or a phone you can turn on, go ahead and get open to the New Testament book of Titus. We're, uh, we're walking through, if you're, if you're new here or you weren't here last week, we started a new series and we're going to be walking through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Titus, who was a church planter slash pastor slash apostolic delegate on the island of Crete. Uh, for the churches there and for the benefit and blessing of those churches. So we're going to continue in our, our time of worship by studying this passage. Customarily, um, we spend time after we, after we sing and after baptism happens uh, for us to spend some time in prayer of intercession. We're going to bump that to the end because there's some special things, announcements and so forth that we have attached to the end of the gathering. So stay tuned for that time of focused prayer afterwards. But for now, let's just dive right into the scriptures. Titus 1, we'll pick up right where we left off last week. I'll start reading in verse 5. The Apostle Paul writes, The reason I left you, Titus, in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would open our lives, that you would open our hearts. You would, from this passage and the truths that it contains, draw us more deeply into a love for you, draw us more deeply into trusting in you and obeying you and following you. We want reverent hearts. We want humble hearts that are receptive to the truth. May the truth find a home in us this morning and may it lead to change that brings you glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about leadership this morning. Leadership is a booming industry by all accounts. If you just rewind just 30 years or so, back in the 1980s, an average of three books on leadership were published each year. In the entire year, you'd get an average of three books on leadership. By now, 
leadership books and materials, it's impossible to count. I did a Google search last night of leadership resources, leadership books, and it was something like 2.5 billion hits. Everyone is talking about leadership. Everybody wants to be a leader. Everybody wants to read a book about how to be a leader. More than $50 billion is spent annually just on corporate training and development around the world. So this is a hot topic. And yet, at the same time, sitting right next to that, there is a shift in how we're thinking about leaders today. There is injected into the conversation about leadership a lot more skepticism than there ever has been in the past. There's a, there's a whole genre of podcasts, a whole genre of uh, TV shows that expose corruption in leaders who were icons in their industry, in finance, in business, in politics, in sports, even in ministry. Podcasts and TV shows that document the failures of leaders. Paul David Tripp, back in 2013, he's a Christian author and he wrote an outstanding book on leadership and it's called Dangerous Calling. And it really has been the go-to book on warning about toxic leadership and how pastors and elders and spiritual leaders of one variety or another can exchange character for platform or for power or acclaim and so forth. So warnings about replacing character with gifting instead. And here, here's the... Um, the cruel irony of the book Dangerous Calling, written in 2013. Three of the five men whose endorsements appear on the back cover of the book are now out of the ministry, having been publicly disgraced for the very kind of prideful and domineering spirit that the book contends against. That's called irony. No wonder books are written by Barbara Kellerman, for example, who's a guru on leadership at Harvard. And the name of the book that she just wrote is called The End of Leadership. And yet, on the other hand, so there's a, there's a heavy side of this conversation, but on the other hand, when you see great leadership, isn't it inspiring? When you see, I mean at all levels, even practical levels, if you walk into a, a hotel that is well-managed, that is well-run, that is run with excellence, it, leaves an impact, right? This place is clean, this place is well-maintained. You go to a, a restaurant, you drive through Chick-fil-A for goodness sake, right? For years we couldn't have a drive-through experience that was pleasant until Gospel Chicken came along and uh, Chick-fil-A, right? It's like, how did I get there? There were 90 cars and 30 seconds later I have my food in hand and it's hot, right? There's something about leadership that it's like, okay, well I think we're wired as image bearers to look for stuff like this, to aim at stuff like this. You, you see a ministry in the city, for example, and it's helping people turn the page from brokenness to redemption. And you just say, wow, I'm so glad they're in the city. I'm so glad they're doing this kind of work. You read a biography of Wilberforce or a biography of George Mueller, and you just come away saying, look at these people, these lives who leveraged all their gifts and skills and passion to, to serve the world, to serve the city, to serve the vulnerable, it's, it's a powerful thing. Good leadership, leadership at its best is deeply inspiring. More personally, I hope that many in this room, certainly not all probably, but I hope that many in this room have the joy of when I say the word good leader, you think of your dad, or you think of your mom, or you think of a teacher in your school. 
I was on a long run with some guys a week ago Saturday. And uh, we're getting to know each other because we have such a slow pace and we're trying to run so far that you end up having to talk about basically everything in your entire life. So I'm running next to this guy who's now become a friend. And while we're running through uh, downtown Birmingham together, he tells me, you know, I don't think I would have graduated college if it weren't for one particular professor. And that professor knew some of my story and I really, I hit a wall in college and I was not gonna finish. I was so depressed and so discouraged. There was no way I was gonna finish. And I didn't have a dad because my dad had abandoned me and my mom had died when I was a child. And this professor said, we're gonna get to the finish line, you and me. I'm gonna make sure you graduate. And he walked with me and he counseled me through the whole process. Leadership can be a really beautiful and inspiring thing when it's done well and it's done right, and that's what God's interest is in right here in Titus chapter one. What's happening here is Titus is a church leader on the island of Crete. Crete had problems. You could tell even when I was reading the text that Crete had a lot of problems. You see some of those in the passage. People are, are coming and they're teaching things. You see, they're teaching things that they ought not to teach. They're stirring up conflict and ripping people off, dishonest money handlings and so forth. And God's solution to that problem, according to Titus 1, is Titus, raise up some godly leaders for a change. Fire some bad leaders, issue some pink slips in Jesus' name, and raise up some good leaders, some godly, some virtuous leaders. That's going to move the needle for the body of Christ in Crete. And in particular, this passage is talking about not just spiritual leadership in general, but it's talking about eldership. It's talking about pastoral, uh, the office of the pastor, the role of the shepherd. So while there is a narrow focus here, and we'll be talking a lot about pastors and it's talking about the qualifications for pastors and elders. There is a lot here for all of us, I think, to take away. There's principles here as we think about what it means to be a good and godly leadership, whatever that might look like in your own life. One of my favorite quotes on leadership is from a friend of mine who's awkwardly in the room. Uh, his name is Scott James, and he is, uh, he's an elder here at Brook Hills, and we've been friends for a long time. Four years ago, Scott posted this, and it came up on my feed again recently. Here's what he wrote. My advice to Benjamin, his son, my advice to Benjamin as he heads off to Brook Hills Kids Camp this morning. Knuckleheads have fun and hurt people. Leaders have fun and help people. You know what to do. And you're dismissed for this morning. That is a... That's, that's such good, practical, getting at the heart of the character of godly leadership. Paul says, Titus, you know what to do? Here's what leaders do. Number one, example. They commend the good life. There's a Christian philosophy of life, a way to live toward flourishing. There's, what's interesting and what I love about this passage is what it not just what it says about Christian leadership, but what it doesn't say about Christian leadership. There's nothing in here about the leader's charisma, about academic credentials, there's nothing about leadership style, there's nothing about vision casting, right? All the things that the books on leadership are about, 2.4 billion of them, and Paul says precious little about any of that, and he features this, hey, show it. Commend the good life, the Christian life, the faith, by the way you live, by good works, by your conduct. Where's the focus? A couple of things that we'll unpack here. The focus is, number one, living with integrity. 
So he says the elder must be blameless. It's the only term that's used twice in our short passage is the word blameless. Blameless, hopefully this is obvious, it doesn't mean without faults. It doesn't mean flawless or impeccable. If it meant flawless, guess how many elders we would have at Brook Hills? Right, zero. Uh, We wouldn't have any elders, right? So when Paul says an elder must be blameless, the idea is it must be someone who is not tarnished by accusations of bad character. That is credible accusations. That is accusations that stick, that, that fit the person, right? In other words, it's almost like Paul is saying, would this aspiring pastor, would his neighbors be surprised if he became a pastor in Crete? Would his children be shocked if they saw this list of things are what you're searching for in elders, and if, you're, if the children grew up and they saw that was the list in front of the people who hired my dad, that list? Would they be surprised that these are the things we were looking for in spiritual leaders? Matter of fact, Paul starts really right there. He talks about the leader's life at home, living with integrity. Second, bringing faith home. So verse six, you see the the language there. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And then he goes on to talk about his children. So it starts at home. Husband of one wife and his children. Doesn't mean that he must be married. Paul wasn't married. Doesn't mean they have to have children. The point is, if he's married, let's make sure we look at that marriage. If he has children, and he might not, but if he does, let's look at those children. Let's look at how they're raised. Let's take a temperature of what's going on in the household insofar as we are able to. So as for marriage, the language that he's using there, a literal translation could be this, that he is a, quote, one woman man. In other words, the point being, he's devoted to his wife. And who sees it? Well, let's start here. She sees it. She knows he's devoted to her. He has eyes for one woman and it's her. You know who else knows it? The kids know it. The kids can tell, and kids are perceptive, aren't they? The kids can tell, man, my dad loves my mom, loves my mom, cherishes my mom. You know who else can see it? The world can see it. Anybody in their circles of influence can look, you can't, you can be around him for five minutes, or you can spend one dinner in their house, and you can tell that man loves that woman. He's devoted to that woman. He, he cherishes this woman. Others can see it. Paul talks about the children. So you see the language that he uses there. Children who are not accused of wildness. So obviously no toddlers. Um, <laughs> you, you see the point though. The point, hopefully it's obvious. This doesn't mean that the children might not have a wild hair in them. <laughs> that there might not be some things that need to be worked out taught out, instructed out, disciplined out, right? There's, there's a lot of things that are going on in the, in the parenting journey uh, that the Lord is using that to sanctify the children and the parents as well, but it's a sanctifying process where we're all moving along. There's not perfection on any side of it and in the middle, there's not perfection. So it doesn't even mean, when it talks about faithful children, it doesn't even mean that if an elder's child in later years leaves the faith, that that elder is thus disqualified. It doesn't mean that either. Jesus discipled 12 guys, and one of them was an apostate. There's a percentage there, right? 
There are, you read through the Old Testament and you can see time after time after time there are examples of good and godly parents and there are examples of bad and destructive parents, neglecting parents. Eli the priest, for example, in the book of 1 Samuel. Eli, Eli the priest is... He's always in the temple. He's always in ministry. Everybody's impressed with his ministry, but his sons were out of control. And the passage goes on to say the reason the sons were out of control is because, quote, Eli failed to restrain them. He just said, hey, you know, live and let live. Go your own way. It's like, that's not, that's called not parenting, <laughs> right? Nurture, Discipline, admonishment, affirmation, love, care, concern, hugs, playtimes, right? All this, imbuing the gospel into the story of the household and at the center of the household. This is all part of it. In other words, this is not meant to imply a kind of perfectionism in the home of would-be leaders. No parent, just so everybody's clear, I think this will be encouraging to us if you're in the parenting journey. No parent can make your child bear spiritual fruit. That's only the grace of God. Only God has the keys to the heart of your child. We're not programming computers. These are image bearers. They are complicated. And only the grace of God has access to the heart of our children. And so, so I, I read an article years ago as a classic textbook idealistic parent, and my kids were really, really young, and I read this article, and I was so helped and encouraged by this statement that the person said, so much of the work that we do as parents is done in prayer. That there are things we can't bring about and we can't change, though we're providing all the nurture we know how, and yet only the Lord can do the work to win their hearts to himself. So the question for evaluation of the pastors and elders at issue here is, is it apparent that he provided, when the children were in the home, patterns of spiritual leadership? Patterns of godly leadership and example. I, I can't improve on these words. I think they'll be encouraging not just to, to pastors or elders, but for any Christian parents here. Kent Hughes writes, we should all recognize that there are periods of life when raising children is more difficult and when beliefs of parents are naturally questioned. By encouraging us to examine the faithfulness of all a potential leader's children, and not, for instance, the temporary mistakes or commendations of one child in a family of five, the apostle is charging us to take stock of the home as a whole. We are to make an assessment of leadership appropriateness on the basis of overall patterns, not exceptions. The parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3 enriches our understanding of this standard. There, Paul says that an elder should, quote, manage his own family well. How could this be determined if there were never any struggles in the family? Good leadership is not determined in the absence of difficulty, but in the prudent discipline and handling of problems when difficulties come. So the larger point being this, spiritual leadership starts at home. Appropriately, it starts at home. Living with integrity, bringing faith home. Third, practicing restraint. We're going to bundle a number of these phrases under this category of practicing restraint. There are five negative traits. Paul says we'll disqualify a would-be leader and then six positive traits to look for. But starting with the negative traits to avoid, the first one is not arrogant. Not arrogant, not conceited, he says in the other passage in 1 Timothy 3. A social media um, company that does Christian satire 
and uh, used to really, uh, when it first launched, they used to poke fun at evangelicals of all stripes. And it was, it was good humor, there was some truth in it, but it was also mixed with kind of playfulness. It wasn't necessarily mean-spirited. But there was satire and there was some good kind of spreading it around, sharing the love and uh, picking on brothers and sisters in that way. So they, they wrote a fake news headline and the headline was this, local Calvinist's sense of superiority visible from space. <laughs> That's still hilarious. I mean, that was years ago, but I still die laughing just reading that headline. So here's how, the, it's again, it's satire. It's, it's a fake news thing, but here's how the article reads. Miami, Florida, a local Calvinist sense of superiority has gotten so large it is now visible from low earth orbit, a NASA correspondent reported Tuesday morning. His choice theological system dwarfed all other objects visible with a naked eye at approximately 400 kilometers above sea level, casting a large shadow over Miami and surrounding areas. So that's the idea. Paul is just saying, not arrogant, not, not a big-headed person. Every time they walk into the room, they, they assume I'm the smartest person in the room. Everybody shut up and listen to me. Paul's saying, well, okay, if they carry themselves like that, not an elder. <laughs> Don't bring them on to the counsel of those who lead the church spiritually. So not arrogant. Second, and we'll bundle this, not hot-tempered and not a bully. So we'll pull those in at the same time here. Not hot-tempered and not a bully. That doesn't that doesn't prohibit strong emotions. That doesn't prohibit strong convictions or even strong reactions. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul when, when Peter's actions undermine the gospel and Paul gets in the business, right? Paul, is, Paul addresses that issue right there where it happened. So it doesn't prohibit strong emotions, but it prohibits a pattern of strong and toxic reactions. So having a short fuse cutting people off, not listening, being demanding, having an ego trip. If, um, if some leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention who care deeply about not ordaining women pastors, which by the way, I agree, Women pastors should not be ordained. But if some Southern Baptist leaders who care deeply about not ordaining women pastors cared equally about not having bullying pastors, the number of names on the chopping block would increase significantly. This matters. This is a command. We're, we're charged as spiritual leaders to be gentle, not overbearing. Bullies make bad leaders anywhere, but especially in the church, especially in the church. Next, not an excessive drinker. So we're still on the list of restraints. They're sober, figuratively, and literally. To put it plainly, elders don't get drunk. A good leader knows the wisdom of moderation, not just in that category, but moderation in all things, and keeping their minds about them. Good leaders get this, and so Paul has to enumerate this specifically. And fifth, not greedy for money. Now that doesn't mean the best pastor is an underpaid pastor. I praise God it doesn't mean that. <laughs> I'm thankful, right? Paul says elsewhere, pastors are worthy of a paycheck. But what's he getting at here? He's saying they shouldn't be in it for the money. It should not be the goal. And if they have to take a pay cut, they should be willing to do that. 
If, if the urgency of the moment requires it, they're not going to bail because the paycheck isn't right because they weren't in it for the money in the first place. So after five negative traits, then Paul gives these six positive traits. That's what not to do. Here's what to pursue. Hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. It is a virtuous person. Person whose aim is to be like Jesus, to put his character on display in the way that they lead. How did Jesus lead? Towel in one hand and bowl on the ground, washing the feet of his disciples. It's, it's servant driven leadership. You want to be a leader? Whether it's in the church or the home or your high school or in student ministry, run after God. Value and treasure his word. Set an example for your friends. Don't applaud what's cool. Applaud what lasts. Understand the difference, right? Ask the Holy Spirit to give you power to say no to anything that would become your master that isn't named Jesus. That's what this passage is calling leaders to do. Crucify your ego and lay down your life for others. Three positive, these positive traits in so many ways they call for, the next point is demonstrating kindness. You just think about what he said not to do and you think about the opposite. What's the opposite of hot-tempered, arrogant, and greedy bullies? <laughs> kindness is a good word that kind of gets what the anti-that is. Another good word that gets at that is verse eight. Not those things, but hospitable. The word from which we get our word hospital comes from this. It means, that word hospitable means love of strangers. So this is a person, this, this spiritual leader is a person who opens their hearts to others, who is magnanimous. This is a person who doesn't just open their heart. This is just kind of a figurative thing, right? Opens their home, their literal front door to serve, to bless, to feed. Someone who welcomes people who are in need. That's the profile of spiritual leadership. I just finished reading the biography of George Mueller and, uh, and it was a stunning read. I mean, there were some things that I expected to see there because I had heard the legends of how Mueller trusted in God and his life of prayer to ask God to do things and, and Mueller was insistent on not asking people to fund the mission but just asking the Lord to give them a heart to fund the mission and the mission just gets funded and he starts launching orphanage after orphanage and providing for all these vulnerable children. I, I expected to see things about his tremendous faith. I was struck by his generosity and I was also struck by his kindness. Extraordinary kindness even toward those who were rebellious in the orphanages. So there were, there were children who sometimes came in because unlike most of the orphanage policy where, where you could get people to vote for you so that you could get in, somebody would vouch for you and you could get in. Mueller said, our policy is the child who shows up at the front door, we open the door and we say, come in and have a meal. We'll figure out how to feed you. We'll figure out how to clothe you. Come inside. God will provide. And, and some of these children who came in had, had deep trauma and, and trouble in their past and sometimes they acted out in, in ways that were really harmful to others or to the institution itself. There's a story about a boy in the orphanage and here's what it says. 
Once a boy was about to be dismissed before the whole company for repeated bad behavior over a long period when Mueller placed his hand on his head and began to pray for him. To show how brazen and unconcerned he was, the boy turned to face Mueller with eyes wide open. To his amazement, tears were rolling down Mueller's cheeks. There and then, according to the story, the boy was converted to Christ and his life dramatically changed. Yet another boy later in life described his dismissal by Mueller in Mueller's final words with tears of, I am sorry, God bless you. It is, as scripture tells us, the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And when we show others gospel-infused kindness, who knows how the spirit might work? You think about this truth that we celebrate every Sunday We are one-trick ponies at the Church of Brook Hills. It's gospel, gospel, gospel. Christ does it all. He is all-sufficient Savior. Kindness is God's resting face over you because of the gospel. This morning, God's resting face doesn't scream, I tolerate you. I'll take you if you improve. Let's watch and see. Let's take it a day at a time. No, God's resting face over all of his children is kindness, the pleasure of God. You are wrapped in robes of righteousness before him. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to work to ingratiate yourself. That's why it's called good news. We don't earn it. And if kindness is God's resting face over us, What effect will that have on the people of God, on the children of God? Even if it's not changing everything yet, it will, is our confidence. This gospel at the center will change us. What if kindness was your resting face? Pastors, parents, teachers, faith trainers, disciple makers, missionaries. What if your resting face was the same resting face you see God? shining on you, the kindness of God. So he talks about example, and then he talks about instruction, commending the faith. Commending the faith. And I won't belabor this point since what remains in this chapter is gonna come up throughout this letter to Titus, but just notice the call of spiritual leaders involves a life and a message. Not one or the other. It's not... It's not a message without a life that backs it up, but neither is it a life without a message that explains it. It's both. It's word and deed. It's conduct that adorns the gospel, and it's the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. Paul says, you see in verse 9, the language, holding to the faithful message. So before, it's all about the way he lives, and now it's about the, the teaching he grasps with both hands. Holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. And I love that one, too, of, of encouragement and refutation. Tim Keller, who is now with the Lord, Pastor Tim Keller from New York, and he went to be with the Lord uh, deep into uh, last week, and one of the things that he talked about a lot was his philosophy of preaching. And he said, my philosophy of preaching is is I want to hold some things up, let the gospel and let Jesus shine. I also want to tear some things down. So if whatever passage is under my finger, I see from there a way to edify the saints and also to disabuse them of lies. 
to take out what he called defeater beliefs, where the enemy gets in our ear and wants to lead us astray. And he says, let's take out those defeater beliefs. While we're there, there's a set of defeater beliefs and let's, let's target those. The book of Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah understands his calling in, that, in those kinds of terms. He says, he says, I'm here to plant something and I'm here to pluck something up. There are weeds that grow in the Christian garden and those are to be pulled up by the word of God applied to our lives. And there's also something to plant. And I think that's what Paul is going after here. Your philosophy of teaching, Titus, it needs to put some things down into the ground that's gonna grow and bring flourishing. It also needs to pull some stuff out of the ground that's, that's contaminating the garden of faith. So holding the faithful message. What is the faithful message? It is the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, rescue. Creation, the God who made us in his image, wanted to dwell with us. He wanted to come near. He wanted to satisfy the deepest places in our lives as we simultaneously acknowledge his glory, his beauty, his goodness, his majesty, his authority, and we worship him and give him the praise that he is due, and God is most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in him. It's this this beautiful relationship between the fulfillment that we know as we worship God. That's creation, that's how it was meant to be. And then the fall though, we turned aside, but we turned aside. All the tragedies in the Bible and beyond in the world, every tragedy in the Bible begins with those two words as it were, but we. We turned aside, we rebelled, we fell away. We were duped, we were tricked. Adam and Eve were duped in the garden. The the serpent comes in and it said he was more crafty than anybody they had ever encountered before. If you're familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, and Esau got tricked by his cunning brother Jacob, and he was tricked. He traded his inheritance for a bowl of soup. His right now appetites were exchanged for his, his inheritance. And we did the same thing right there in the garden, and we traded, and we lost everything. We, we, we lost God's presence, we lost God's favor. Now we deserve God's judgment, we deserve God's wrath. But God, creation, fall, redemption, God sent Jesus. But God, every hope-filled story in the Bible pivots on those words, but God. God sent Jesus Christ. Jesus took our sins upon himself. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He absorbed the wrath of God, the just punishment of God against our human sins. He bore our guilt and shame in six hours on Good Friday and he opened God's presence and favor to sinners deserving his wrath. That's why when he said it is finished, the curtain that, that separated the temple from the outside, it was torn in two from top to bottom. It means now that Jesus' blood has been shed, come on in everybody who trusts in Jesus. You don't have to jump through hoops, you don't have to perform, you don't have to ingratiate yourself. Trust the one whose blood was shed in your place. We got a gospel every Sunday, y'all. Every Sunday. So how do we, Paul's words, how do we hold to the faithful message taught? We sing the gospel. We sing it into our bones. We sing it Sunday after Sunday. We counsel God's grace toward one another. When it comes and we counsel God's grace, we remember the gospel, we preach the good news to ourselves, we talk about and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us more and more toward freedom. We don't treat our sin dismissively. We don't dust it off and make it a small thing. We don't make light of the sins that got Christ crucified. We know, verse six kind of way, that it's possible to talk the faith but not walk the faith. And Paul says, not so with you, not believers 
Walk in the light, the Apostle John would say. So when we teach the word, in whatever place that might be in the church, we teach for a change. We teach for a change. God's word unleashed with the power of God's spirit transforms people. It sets captives free. It stabilizes people in a shaky world. It gives hope. It gives new clothes to those covered in shame. Maybe this morning the topic of leadership is a sensitive topic for you. Maybe it's triggering to you to talk about leadership. Why? Because I'm a failed leader, Matt. I got things in my past I'm not proud of. I I have a decorated resume of decisions that have led to pain in my life and other people's lives. Oh, understand this. You can be the opposite of every description held up in this passage and be blameless by the time you walk out this morning. (laughs) That's how free grace rolls. That's how scandalous mercy is. Trust in Christ and you're home. Trust in Christ and you're clean and you are free. What do we do with this passage? Two things I want to give you, church, two things. What do we do with this passage? Number one, hold the bar high. So don't water down these qualifications. These qualifications, they they don't just tell us something about elders or about pastors or about leaders. They tell us something far more fundamentally about God, about what God is like. They tell us God has a passion to make us new. God has a passion to show the world truth, goodness, and beauty by presenting his redeemed people as evidence. He holds his redeemed people out before the world and says, look at the change the gospel can bring. And so I would encourage you, as in your own personal life, in your aspirations toward leadership of whatever kind, pray this. God, may my gifts never exceed my character. May my gifts never outrun or never exceed my character. Hold the bar high. And second, aim at ordinary. Don't pedestal leaders. It's unrealistic. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help them either. The leaders who are sought here in Titus 1 are not superhuman. Again, what I love about this passage is what Paul leaves out. Contains nothing about intelligence, decisiveness, drive, power. Almost everything on this list is required elsewhere in the New Testament of all believers. In other words, you aim at these things and you get to be called a mature Christian. We're all called to aspire to aim at these Things. These are the directives. This is the virtuous life, the Christ-centered, gospel-shaped life. Don Carson, New Testament scholar, says this about our passage. The most remarkable feature about this list is that it's unremarkable. In other words, if you want to have influence, be faithful to your spouse. Love her. Love your children well. Don't be a hothead. Don't be a bully. Don't be an alcoholic. Don't abuse your position for money. Pursue godliness. Make Jesus your message. That's what a Christian is. In so many ways. It's not a comprehensive list of all the things that the Spirit does in our lives, but goodness gracious, there's so much there. 
Knuckleheads have fun and hurt people. Leaders have fun and help people. You know what to do. As Paul says, Titus, you know what to do. Find these kind of people. Raise up these kinds of people and watch the blessing that comes to the body. Friends, may God give us grace to see this kind of leadership all across our church life. Amen? Amen.